Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. From KQED. From KQED in San Francisco, I'm Alexis Madrigal. Few writers have had as meteoric a rise through the nonfiction ranks as Carville Wallace. For good reason. His keyboard presence is off the charts. He can take any raw material and write something immersive, propulsive, deeply honest. Whether he's writing for his podcast like Finding Fred about Mr. Rogers, a GQ profile of Michael B. Jordan, or a searching piece about parenting black children, his engagement is total. He asks more of us than journalism normally does. How should someone be in the world? What is it to be a good person? Can we, each of us and this country, find serenity, which is to say giving up hope for a better past? Wallace just won a huge journalism award, and he's here with us to talk about honesty, masculinity, and a lot of feelings after this news. Welcome to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. In getting ready for the show... I was going back through Carville Wallace's prodigious output from the last decade. And there are just so many good stories. Sam Jackson cover story, the one about the Green Book, the one about cowboys, the one about divorce, the one about the black cyclist, the one wondering about his mother's life if she'd never had him. In all of them and his podcast too, he's working towards radical truth, which is really just actual truth, and he often starts with himself. His emotional precision describing that inner landscape evokes in me an almost overwhelming gratitude. Like, how lucky we are to have this man, this writer, this thinker, this member of the Bay Area to show us how to be so honest and alive in public. He's the well-deserving recipient of this year's American Mosaic Journalism Prize from the Heising Simons Foundation, a major award for deep reporting on underrepresented groups in America and he beat the traffic to join us here in Studio B. <laughs> Thank you, Carvel, for all of it. I'm so happy to be here. Thanks for having me. <laughs> so you won this prize. You've been writing across you know, all these different genres mm. in these different media. And a decade ago, you weren't even doing this. So how did you find yourself in this writing life? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I took the long, the long path like a lot of us do because um, I think especially for writers, it makes sense to take the long path because you're gathering, gathering life, gathering life. I remember when I was, I went to school for theater. Um, I went to arts high school in LA for to be an actor and then I went to NYU Tisch School of the Arts to be an actor. And I remember I was working on a show um, in New York at, uh, uh, I forget which, I forget where, but, um, you know, I was having this, difficult conversation about should I work in the show or should I go travel? And I remember the artistic director said, you have to go live. You have to go live because otherwise you won't have anything to make work about. And that always stuck with me. And so I don't think I did that on purpose. I think I just, that's just what happened to me anyway, because I could never fully make a decision about what I was doing. So um, I worked as an actor for a little bit through my 20s. I came out to the Bay Area, sort of randomly ended up out here through various life circumstances, this, that. And then um, I ended up getting married here and having a kid. And once, you know, once I had children, it was like, this is where I'm going. And also it limited what I could do kind of creatively in terms of travel. I certainly wasn't going to go like do Oregon Shakespeare for six weeks or something (laughs) 
with two babies at home. I had been playing music for a while. I certainly wasn't going to go like Tour. ride around in the back yeah. of a van <clears throat> with a bunch of stinky guys for three months um, with a baby at home. So it, I just kind of settled here and got a job. I worked in youth nonprofit for a long time. And writing was always there for me as a thing to do because it was a kind of creative expression that I could do without having to leave my home. Um, but I never was able to make it anything serious um, until sometime around 2014 when I, um, during the uh, the uprising in Ferguson, mm-hmm. um, I wrote <clears throat> a piece, a little up sort of status on Facebook that was maybe 500 words, where I just kind of ruminated on this moment and what it meant. And um, people seemed to like that piece. It went sort of mini viral. A friend of mine asked if they could share it on their friend's blog. That friend's blog sort of happened to be a blog where it was called The Manifestation. It was based in L.A. And it happened to be a blog that had a small following, but the following was like all celebrities. <laughs> and right, so, like Cindy Crawford <clears throat> ended up sharing that's it. That's right? what happened. Yeah, yeah, so like yeah. uh, Cindy Crawford shared the piece on Twitter. I had a Twitter with like seven followers at that point that I forgot that I even had. And Cindy Crawford shared this piece. And then I logged into Twitter one day like three weeks later and was like, what is all this? And uh, that's how things got started. And then a, a few editors reached out to me, notably Jessica Hopper, who was at Pitchfork, said, have you ever written about music? And um, of course, I said yes, which I had not. But I, you know, I'm always like a say <laughs> make yes. Make it you make it. You know? Yeah, I'm like a say yes kind of guy. So like, um, you know, I had so much to say about music because I had been obsessed with it through college and I had played in bands and, you know, it, it had been my, it had re- been a real love for me. And so when I got a chance to write about music at Pitchfork, that was kind of a good marriage and things just kind of uh, unfolded from there. Yeah. I mean, do you feel like your work, when you consider it, you know, from then to now, I can kind of see how even some of the things you mentioned, the first things you were writing, these Facebook statuses, it does feel like it's some part of a cohesive project that maybe you're kind of figuring out piece by piece. Yeah. I don't know that, uh, I mean, I have accepted at this point that that's probably true. I don't think I ever tried to do that. And I don't think if I tried to do that, I could ever do it because I I don't have the attention span for that. (laughs) I have severe ADHD. (laughs) There's no way I could sustain a project from like, you know, like when I see people who make works of art that are intricately plotted over sort of like years, I'm like, that's amazing, but I could never do that. I think that my way of doing that is by remaining incredibly responsive to what is happening. And I think that, you know, I always say, if you tell the truth, you can predict the future because the truth never changes. And so if you keep telling the truth, and I I try to focus on emotional truths mostly. And if I keep telling the emotional truth, then it, it is inevitable that a pattern will emerge because it's almost like you remain connected to source and that source becomes apparent over, over a period of time. Well, for people who aren't familiar with the work, <clears throat> let's dip in a little bit. We, um, you've written many different things, but the judges of this particular journalism award picked out a couple of different pieces, and mm. one of them is considering the possibility that your mom would have had an abortion instead of having um, you as a child. And maybe you want to you want to set it up a little bit more, and then we have a little piece for you to read there too. Yeah, I, um, you know, this was around the time that the news broke that the Supreme Court was going to overturn Roe. And uh, of course, a lot of us were reflecting on how we can write about abortion. And I had written before, I think I tweeted before that, you know, my own experience um, with abortion had been that it had actually saved my life in a lot of ways, uh, because my partner and I, who would later be my wife, ended up getting, she got pregnant when we were very young and we decided not to continue with that pregnancy. And I sort of talked about 
online how that would how that changed the trajectory of our lives and we ended up to having having two beautiful kids who were lovely and everything but um the people responded to that and I, it occurred to me that I don't think a lot of men talk about the way mm-hmm. we experience abortion and the way we benefit from it and the way it's necessary and it always bothered me especially when I was talking with my son about this stuff how it's kind of like we're default told this is a women's issue and even if you're sort of quote unquote supportive of women you're just sitting there quietly going yeah go get them you know and it's like but that's not actually that doesn't make any sense if you even think about it for more than five minutes <laughs> so I started speculating on the different ways that abortion has impacted me Um, And then that kind of led me to my mother and this question of like, um, you know, that you hear from anti-abortion people, which is like, well, if if your mother had an abortion, you wouldn't be here. And I started thinking, well, what is the flip side of that question? It's like if she did have an abortion, what would she have? Maybe she would still be here because my mother died um, in 2008 at 54 years old. She had a very difficult life. She had me when she was very young. And so for me, it was beginning to speculate on what she might have been able to achieve with her life if she didn't have a child so young. Um, and so that's kind of where the, the genesis of the piece found itself. Yeah. Yeah. You want to uh, you want to read um, just a little bit for us? People can hear your yeah. voice. Yeah. This passage reads, um, <clears throat> oftentimes so-called pro-lifers will say, if your mother had an abortion, then you wouldn't be here. What this inane argument misses is the possibility that if my mother had an abortion, she might still be here. What might her life have been without me? Might she have had time to grow up in her own time, figure out who she was, make sense of herself as a black woman, the youngest of 19 children from the same mother? How consensual were those births? I can't help but wonder. Might she have had the space to deal with her mental health issues, her depression, the personality disorders that haunted her, made her life into endless chaos? She may have traveled, made art, collected gemstones, fell in and out of love, gone to school, to therapy, read the plays of Lorraine Hansberry, made love on a beach, lived alone, discovered that she loved women, saved up enough money to buy an apartment, decorated it in the cheesy, glossy, neo-deco pastel style that made me cringe in my emo skateboard adolescent years, and been incredibly happy in it, or perhaps not happy, but at least satisfied that she was living in charge of her life rather than being dragged along by it. That was Carville Wallace reading from his piece, What If My Mother Had an Abortion, which was one of the essays that led him to be selected for the American Mosaic Journalism Prize by the Heising Simons Foundation. We're talking this morning about his incredible body of work and the themes and emotional honesty that run through it. We'd love to hear from you. What's a piece of writing or a podcast of Carvel's that's made you think differently or stuck with you, you can give us a call. The number is 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. The email is forum at kqed.org, or you can find us on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram, or KQED Forum. So you mentioned your mom had had a difficult life, which meant that in part, you had a difficult childhood. Mm. Um your your newest work, the thing that's not out yet, a book that you have in draft form, is is trying to reapproach your childhood, right? I mean, what's how did you decide to try and tackle that area of your life? Well, I tend to focus a lot on, um, I guess, recovery 
from trauma and because I think that there is uh, a, a kind of endless appetite for what I sometimes call trauma porn. Like it's like here there's this kind of book that you could write that just says, oh, this terrible things happened to me and these are all the terrible things and they were terrible and they were terrible. And then maybe in the last page you say, but I survived. And everyone says, oh, that I'm was, here. That yeah. was heartrending and I cried. And um, it felt to me for a lot of reasons, maybe spiritually, but also politically, that that was not enough. That um, that as a marginalized per- person, all marginalized people, I think there is an endless appetite to see us describe our suffering in, in interesting and beautiful terms. And there's a power to that. This is not to suggest that that's not important. For me, it didn't feel like enough. I felt like I had to also describe what it means to thrive and what it means to live. So then you have on the one hand this suffering, and then on the other hand, you have this thriving. And how do you make that transition from one to the other? How do those things coexist? And so to me, the way I ended up approaching the book was writing not too long about some of the um, inciting (laughs) events Mm -hmm. that were painful and traumatic when I was was younger. And then I spend the rest of the book um, working in essay form about various moments in my life in which I... I'm working slowly to recover from that. So it might be a, a relationship. It might be a certain engagement with nature. It might be a moment in which I confront a thing that happened in the past that I didn't understand then, but now I understand. It might be a way in which I confront a challenge in love. Um, I do believe that relationships and love, in order to fully um, work in them, requires us to do all kinds of work of un- uh, unpacking what has harmed us. And I think that work is beautiful and liberating. And so I tend to write about love and relationships a lot in that way. We're talking with Oakland writer Carvel Wallace. He won this year's American Mosaic Journalism Prize. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for more right after the break. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're talking with Oakland writer Carvel Wallace, just won this year's American Mosaic Journalism Prize from the Heising Simons Foundation. We're talking about his incredible body of work and the themes that run through it. So, you know, you write and end up thinking a lot about masculinity, in part because you get hired to do these profiles of kind of men at sort of the peak of their power, (laughs) you know? And the most recent of those... um, is one about Michael B. Jordan, mm-hmm. um, you know, one of the kind of paragons of masculinity of our time. <laughs> and I wonder, just like, what is it for you to approach uh, one of those assignments? Like, are you going there like, all right, 
man to man, me and Michael yeah. B. Like, I don't know. I, I, I would be terrified. It's interesting because, I, yeah, I kind of got pulled into the celebrity profile game somewhat early on um, working at, at Pitchfork, and I did a few artist profiles, and then it, things kind of excelled from there. But uh, I think that... When I approach someone like Michael B. Jordan, I'm not thinking a lot about masculinity um, per se. When I when I talk with him, I th- it comes out more when I listen back to the tapes. Mm. Um, but I think in his case in particular, you know, celeb like actor celebrities are a little bit different than music celebrities. Actor celebrities are always very not always, but frequently very charming, very engaging. <laughs> so you sort of get swept up in their kind of just general charismatic performance in the restaurant <laughs> or whatever it is, and so. You know, I, I sort of go along with that because I know that puts them at ease and they feel like, okay, this person is not looking, viewing me with suspicion. And I think different, you know, a lot of actors, especially if they've been in the game a long time, like Michael B. Jordan's been there since like the 90s, they have a healthy suspicion of press because they've been screwed over in various ways by various writers. So um, I want them to feel at ease. Um, and so, yeah, if they come on and charm and crack jokes and smile and remember my first name and ask about my kids, I'm not going to be like, I'm looking right through you, buddy, because I don't want them to feel defensive. And then, then you sort of lose the subject. So um, for me, a lot of that first meeting is about establishing, listen, we can talk. We can talk honestly. I genuinely I also don't uh, do profiles of people that I don't like, hmm. you know, and I know that that's the thing that some people do. But for me. I don't like doing that because then I'm suspicious of them. Then we have this combative thing. I'm sure you can get some good literature out of that, but that's just not the game. That's not my game. So I do genuinely like and respect the people that I profile. And also I'm able to look at them critically and say, boy, that's interesting that he did this at this moment. Or I wonder why he didn't even say anything about that. You know, so Mm -hmm. I I can write about those things. But it's not from a place of like, I want to take this person down because I genuinely like these people. Yeah. Um, And so with him, I thought that he was... um, he struck me as a person who was incredibly driven. And the main kind of driving question that we had going in is like, why are you so driven? Like, I understand that your people are ambitious. It's America, capitalism, you want to make money, et cetera, et cetera, success. But what is underneath that for you? Um, and I think that's where we got to in the piece. Yeah. I mean, one of the things that's most interesting, considering your sort of body of work, is you're both kind of touching on the most mainstream of American mm. culture, you know, big movies, the biggest celebrities, people who are on the cover of magazines. And then at the same time, you're also going on tiny podcasts to talk about <laughs> like sex and love and masculinity. Yeah. You're writing things from a from about and from the perspective of someone who I, I think is kind of quite outside uh, mainstream culture mm. in, in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. How do you see those two things kind of connecting up? Like your sense of an, an evolving masculinity. I've heard you talk about sort of, you know, where you're coming from and where mm-hmm. you're trying to get to yeah. in terms of thinking about you yeah. know, being a man in this world. That's cis, right. Cis hetero man or not cis queer man in this world. Yeah, that's right. Um, like how do you connect those two parts of that kind of your work up? Well, I think that I've always felt a little alienated from masculinity ever since I was a little kid. And I write a little bit about this in my book and I write about it in some pieces. So I feel like I've always had something of an outsider perspective because even when I was a kid among boys, we're out there. I grew up in, in um, much of my life in a small town outside Pittsburgh. Uh, so it was very like football. We're playing, you know, we're tackling each other on the cobblestone. Like it's very manly. And we're out there in the winter, no hats. Everyone's just like, it's like, how tough can you be? And... Um, as much as I enjoyed that, I also was always just like, why do we act this way? And why is this kid <laughs> like this? And why do we honor these weird things? And so um, 
So I think I've always had something of an outsider perspective on it. And um, I think going to arts high school, moving to L.A. when I was 13, um, I moved around a lot anyway, but moving to L.A. when I was 13 kind of cemented a little bit of an outside observer status for me because everywhere I went, I was kind of from somewhere else. And I never had the experience of being kind of endemic to any space that I was in. So there was always a little bit of like curiosity. Why are people this way? It's funny how they say this here. Why do they talk and dress that way? So for me, uh, I've never seen, I think I, I, I perhaps hold a bunch of stuff in me. And so it's all the same, like a, a tiny little podcast about sex and love and sitting down with Michael B. Jordan in like a members only supper club in, in West L.A. Or, at, or in Beverly Hills. Both of these things feel to me like they're part of the same thing because I have the same questions, which is like, what drives you personally? What is your form of liberation? What are you struggling with? What stands in the way of your ability to love? These are always going to be my questions no matter where I am. Well, let's bounce those some of those questions to you. Um, I mean, <laughs> never mind. What what does Withdrawn. stand? What <laughs> what does stand uh, in the like? What is your form of liberation? Let's start there. Um, I do think of liberation as um, I do think of love as love as a form of liberation. It's a pathway to liberation for me. So the question is, what stands in the way of my ability to love freely and fully? And I, the definition of love that I generally work with is the bell hooks definition that she lays out in All About Love, which is that it's the willingness to extend yourself for the spiritual growth and development of, a, of another. And so it doesn't mean that you break yourself in order, and turn everything over, but it means you're willing to see how you can extend for someone else's spiritual mm-hmm. growth. And, and that has a definition that I've sat with long enough that it, it's kind of ever unfolding. Um, and I think about in my relationships with my children, for example, there are times in which they need a certain kind of spiritual freedom and they're pushing in a certain way and what they're doing and how they're doing it triggers me, makes me feel uncomfortable, touches my old childhood wounds. And when I remember that definition of love is like, okay, am I willing to extend myself? How do I deal? How do I move these wounds out of the way or work around them so that I can give this person their space to grow towards their spiritual liberation? So it's a, it's a, it's a together thing. I, I, my liberation is in working. My liberation is, as a friend of mine told me the other day, my liberation is bound up with the liberation of other people. Mm. Um, and what she said in that call was that, and that means that your heart gets broken a lot because other mm. people's liberation isn't always, doesn't always happen the way you want it to. And that's part of what it means to be alive too. And I write about sadness and grief and heartbreak a lot because I don't think there's a way to avoid that. And I, you know, I was, I was thinking about, I think love is a very misused concept and it's misunderstood and it's used to advance capitalism and advance all this white supremacy and stuff. Love is means like in a lot of people's mind, it means kindness, lots of affection. It means being super nice. It means never fighting. It means never saying a harsh thing, never making anyone feel uncomfortable. And that's not actually what it is. Um, love is not always gentle and love is not always kind. It's, it's, it's anxious. It's, it's confusing. It's stressful, but <clears throat> we get to return to this question of like, my liberation is bound up in yours, and so let us figure out how we can move forward uh, along the, along those lines. We're talking with Oakland writer Carvel Wallace about his incredible body of work and the themes and emotional honesty that run through it. I mean, you want to get in on this conversation about masculinity and, and love? You can give us a call. The number is 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. The email is forum at kqed.org and Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. It's KQED Forum. I mean, one 
thing that I've noticed in your writing and your appearances is this kind of like frankness and kind of openness about being a person in a body. You know, <laughs> and we, you know, we don't often hear men talk about mm. coming to love their bodies or, you know, sometimes we'll hear, you know, controlling them like mm-hmm. Michael B. Jordan or pumping them up or mm-hmm. slimming or whatever mm-hmm. these things, um, but not really loving them. Mm. Was that an easy thing for you to do? Was it hard? Was it natural? Was it something you've had to like meditate and train on? Uh, I've always been super influenced by women, <laughs> you know, in my life. And so this, like uh, this, um, this question of like, the body being a site of liberation has been presented to me for years. Um, and um, my theory now is that one of the reasons men cause so much harm is because of our separation from our bodies. Um, our bodies represent something that we can't control. Uh, I think a lot about, you know, like the ultimate form of, I got really sick a couple of weeks ago and I, it was a reminder that like, that was my body doing something that I didn't want it to do. I didn't have control over it, and th- there it was. And that, to me, feels like a kind of metaphor for the way we engage with nature, that much of nature is out of our control. We don't get to say what it is, what is happening. We can only respond to it, react to it, try to come in harmony with it. And I think that a lot of the harm that we cause generally as a species is in our attempt to control and manage everything. And it's not that there's nothing, it's not that we can't, we can't do anything, but this like force of like, I'm going to force this, I'm going to force this river over here, I'm going to force these people to behave this way, I'm going to force these laws, because I need everything to be exactly as I want it to be. Not only is that a losing battle, that's a battle, that's a crazy making battle that forces people into all kinds of forms of insanity. The fear of having to face something that you must accept, but can't control, causes people to behave in incredibly harmful and hurtful ways. So... My, if my liberation is bound up in the liberation of women, the liberation of children, the liberation of other people, then I can't be running around trying to put my stamp of control on everything because then I'm part of the forces of destruction. Mm-hmm. So that's sort of my, was my way into mm-hmm. figuring out how can I have more patience with myself and more acceptance of my body. Um, and on the other side of that is a kind of liberation and freedom that makes me unafraid to be anywhere. And that's the irony is that we believe that if we can control things, we – it's all, it's all fear. Everything's fear. So if we can control things, we don't have to be afraid. But what I found is that actually trying to control things makes you terrified because you're, there's always something that isn't behaving under your control. So now you have to control it. What I'm looking for is another kind of freedom from fear where I, I don't have to hide. I don't mm. have to be afraid of anything. I can simply be present with everything. Mm. Um, got some comments and uh, calls coming in. Um, one listener writes and say, you know, I work in philanthropy. And I have this profound quote from Carvel on my desk from his time uh, at Slate. Uh, quote, often we are pitched the idea that we should do service work because it feels good, a notion I take issue with. We should do it because we recognize that we are part of a society from which we enjoy benefits. We have lucked into many of those benefits and we continue to enjoy them because there are systems in place to make sure we remain the beneficiaries of these systems. And so we do work in order to help other people who haven't been so undeservingly fortunate. We do it as part of our rent for being on this earth and soaking up its resources. We do it because we recognize that a society where people do not help one another is a society where no one is ever safe or at peace. Mm. Um, that's a beautiful quote from this. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> um, I, and and yeah, it leads us into kind of a, a section here, which is on... Very few people try to tackle in their work at this point, at least in the journalism game, how do I be a good person, Mm. (laughs) right? Mm -hmm. And I feel like, you know, 
for those who have not heard Carvel's uh, Mr. Rogers podcast, it takes us on directly. Mm. How does one be in the world? And I, I, talk to me a little bit about trying to do that work through Mr. Rogers, who really does seem like he was a good person, right. like the one. Yeah, I think it's interesting because the original, I, that podcast was not my idea. I didn't come up with it. I didn't pitch a Mr. Rogers podcast. I got approached by some the folks at Fatherly who were like, we want to do a show about Fred Rogers. Uh, and we, at that point, the take was that, we want to establish that Fred Rogers was actually kind of a philosophical heavyweight, that mm. he's seen as this lightweight children's figure, but actually he was working with some heavy philosophical stuff. And mostly I avoided that because I don't have a background in philosophy and I thought <laughs> that would be over my head. But I, but I, so I was like, well, here's what I'm curious about with Fred Rogers. Here's this guy who I truly believe was great. I don't doubt him at all, but he's running around talking about love everyone. You're accepted just as you are. What about the most terrible people in the world? Are they accepted just as they are? How? What is this? this gospel of I love you just as you are mean in a world where there's genocide, there's sexual assault, there's violence, there's racism. What does that mean in that context? And to me, that felt like an interesting question because I think as a journalist, to me, the most interesting question is the one that I do not know the answer to. And I remember when I was working on my show at Al Jazeera, my... um, uh, I was I went to like a little interview boot camp and I was like doing these fake interviews with different people around the office. And my producer, Casey Miner, said, don't ask questions that you already know the answer to. And I didn't realize that I had been doing that, but I was doing that. <laughs> <laughs> and once she said that, something in me flipped that I did. St- I mean, occasionally you have to do that to establish whatever. But like the, the real meat of the interviews always ended up being questions that I truly didn't know the answer to. Mm-hmm. And um, those answers then got to surprise me. I got to learn and change as a result of the conversation. And now we have live tape going. And I remember that, uh, you know, so when I went with the Fred Rogers, that was the question. It's like, I genuinely do not know how this guy's gospel, who I believe was, he was valid about it. He was trying to, he was for real. I don't know how that applies to me uh. and to you in this world right now. So let us embark on a journey to ask that question of everyone that we encounter. And what did you come to? Well, I came to a lot of people who accept that the work of being a good person is not feel-good work. It can be, but it's also a work of presence and sometimes struggle. And I learned that you don't have to like people in order to love them. Um... I learned that we do have a responsibility. That quote that was just read, I think might have actually been from the Fred Rogers show, if I'm not mistaken. Mm-hmm. I learned that our that we do have a responsibility to alleviate the suffering of others on this earth as part of our rent for being here. Because I whatever extent to which I'm not suffering, some some of that is just luck. Just I just, you know, I'm lucky enough. That, that I can be here today with a relatively healthy body and I had food to eat this morning, et cetera. And so the question is, how do I, how do I, um, what am I going to do with my time on this earth? This sort of one wild precious life, the Mary Oliver thing. For me, it's like, well, what can I offer to help alleviate the suffering of other people? Without that, I don't have purpose. I get very depressed. I wake up in the morning and I don't really want to do anything. I don't even want to live. I, I mean, I tend towards depression as a person that I always have ever since I was a kid. So for me, this is about finding purpose. 
And I think that's what I learned during that show is that that was that work was Fred Rogers purpose and purpose sort of became a very important buzzword for me during that time. Do you feel like it was good preparation for kind of this stage of your life where your kids are kind of flying the nest? <laughs> and, you know, the, the kids do provide purpose, you know. I've, yeah. I've heard you talk about this yeah. as well. You know, do you feel like that was good prep to kind of be like, okay, w- what's the next purpose or what's the future purpose? You know, I've never thought of that before, but I think you're exactly right about that because I experienced my son is out of the house. My daughter is basically out of the house. I mean, because she's always yeah. like at Taco Bell with her friends or whatever. <laughs> but, um, but I, um, I did experience a tremendous like sort of feeling of being crestfallen after my kids stopped needing me to make every meal, tie every shoe, you know, kiss every boo-boo. I did feel like, well, what am I what am I doing? Cuz I loved that so much. Mm-hmm. And not cuz I'm like some great guy. I mean, I'm sure I was fine, but it was more cuz it it really gave me something to do. That was other other than just being in my head all day. <laughs> and so, because with kids, it doesn't matter. I mean, me and my partner were just talking about this. You could be depressed, sick, whatever. As soon as the kids come home, all of a sudden you're on. It's, mm-hmm. it's go time, you know? And so I think having that thing outside of myself that was that I was responsible to really helped me. And when my kids start started needing less, yeah, I did experience a feeling of like, well, what do I do now? And yeah, that yeah. I think the Fred Rogers stuff did help with that. I don't know that I ever made that connection before. My theory of parenting is that it's not that we love them so we do the hard work. It's actually that the hard work like constitutes that love. That's actually what makes you end up loving your kids more and more. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, Karen writes in to say, I first heard Carvel on Slate's Mom and Dad Are Fighting, and listening to him weekly on Early Morning Runs made me a better parent and a better human. Oh. I, too, was drawn to creative work and felt like I gave up that part of myself by becoming a partner and a parent. Hearing him talk about his work, his family, and himself and his truth gives me hope that I can still reconnect to that part of myself with much gratitude and warmest congratulations. Mm. Thank you, Karen. We're talking with Oakland writer Carvel Wallace. He just won a big fancy journalism award. (laughs) We'll be back with more right after the break. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're talking with Oakland writer Carvel Wallace. He just won this year's American Mosaic Journalism Prize from the Heising Simons Foundation. We're talking about his incredible body of work, the themes, masculinity, emotional honesty, love, and what that might mean. If you want to join this conversation about love, what it means to be a good person in a deeply flawed world filled with bad people, you can give us a call. The number is 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. Email comments and questions to forum at kqed.org or Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. It's KQED Forum. 
Uh, we are going to get to some calls in this segment of the show. Let's bring in uh, Kevin in Richmond. Welcome, Kevin. Hi. Uh, thanks for the show. I really appreciate it. Uh, Carvel, uh, I just I really love everything you're saying, and uh, I've been listening to you for years. I didn't know about all this. Uh, I didn't know about your writing career, but um, I've heard you around town, and I really appreciate you. I've had a tortured you know, like uh, relationship to masculinity most of my life until I c- came out as non-binary about three years ago and started, you know, presenting myself more femme mm-hmm. out in the world. Mm. But, um, you know, it's, it's this, I, I really related to, you know, that part about like we're hanging out with the boys and doing that, you know, like, why are we doing this? Why are we, why are we doing this? Right, yeah. exactly. And 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 it's and it's like breaking down that, you know, really sort of like breaking it down to the family dynamics of each and every boy from each and every family who's practicing something that, you know, they're that's coming from from somewhere. Mm-hmm. And and I've been digging into that um, I'm a writer also. Mm. I've never published anything, but I got like a thousand pages. <laughs> and um, and um, I'm, I, I, I looked at something in 1988. I saw a National Geographic that showed a Native American person as two-spirited. Mm. And I tucked that away. I tucked it away mm. for years and years and years. And now I'm trying to, you know, just be out there in the world and my daughter asked me this morning, like, um, why do we die? Mm-hmm. And, 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 I, and, it's, and in the spirit of being in a, of love and service, it's, it's to, you know, other people got to have a chance, too. And so what our work is <laughs> right now, you know, you know, we got to give space for other people mm-hmm. to live on this earth. And right now, what, um, you know, what we can do... I forgot what I told her, but there, there was something else. But, yeah, I, I really yeah. appreciate you, and um, thank you for addressing masculinity and how it's really destructive to men it, that, that some masculinity is, like some toxic mm-hmm. masculinity where we're in competition with each other. Mm-hmm. It's destructive to, yeah. to each other. And I have this idea, I'm an artist, you know, what if, what if some of these bros, like, tried wearing a pink barrette in their hair for a day? <laughs> Yeah, Kevin. Um, thank you so much for uh, for that. I mean, we appreciate you. Thank you for calling. And you know, uh, Carvel. You know, it's beautiful to to hear people just learning how to how to live uh, in their bodies and in in their minds. I I wonder. You know, we are seeing such an incredible backlash against mm-hmm. trans people, non-binary people, just living. Mm-hmm. I know there's something you're trying to trying to reckon with. Mm. I don't know how to do it yet. I don't know how to reckon with that backlash yet. Well, uh, well, first of all, I just want to say that this answer about why we die is like maybe the best answer I've ever heard to that. <laughs> so just props to Kevin for that. Because I know what it's like when your kid puts you on the spot with a question and you're just like, I've got to come up with something. Yeah. So that's some stellar parenting right there. Um, I would also say that you know, I, I think of, I mean, I'll get to your question in a second, but I, I think of the redefining of masculinity as mostly it's about 
how do we come into our true forms so that we have nothing to hide? So it's not like, oh, let's take every man and then make him a woman. It's like that's like that may be the case for some people, but it's like it's more like how do we embody all parts of ourselves? How do we have the liberation to fully own all the parts of ourselves, everything along any gender spectrum? How can we have space for that? Because that's what freedom is. And that's what that's what allows us to be at our strongest and to do the most important work here that we have. So that's the way I think of it. In terms of reconciling with the backlash, every liberation movement gets backlash. On the way in, I was listening to an interview with Erica Huggins um, from the Black Panther Party. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it, it hearing this person's story and talking about the way in which she operated within that context reminded me of, like, we're still experiencing the backlash from whatever tiny bit of liberation the Black Panthers were able to achieve starting in 1966. I mean, we're still experiencing it. Like the Republican Party responded and organized themselves to make sure nothing like that ever happened again. And that's what that's why we are where we are today. So I the backlash is horrifying and terrifying. And also it is exactly what position what what power does. It seeks to sustain itself by destroying other other forces, other souls, other people. So the backlash is not surprising I wish it could have been like this great liberation. Everyone's like, oh, gender. Wow, we're really getting screwed by this. Let's be free. And then everyone, and then it would just <laughs> right, be like, wow, exactly. we're all free. Everyone just walk out one day and be like, yeah, today I'm going to wear a dress. I don't give a hell. You know? yeah. But that's not what's happening. We're getting a violent pushback. And you know, legal stuff is terrible. And also, I believe that there is an importance to, and I don't want to overstate this, but there's an importance to continuing to feed our spiritual liberation because it's very hard to legislate spiritual liberation. It's very hard to do that. That's probably why I focus on the things that I focus on. Yeah. Um, Let's bring in Ken in uh, San Francisco. Welcome, Ken. Hey, good morning. I was uh, touched by your comments about spiritual liberation and maleness, and one thing that wasn't mentioned that much was poverty, and Mm. I think poverty is corrosive to the male spirit. Uh, I'm sure it is to everyone, but especially to men, and just as women's magazines are saturated with Photoshop uh, model bodies, uh, so are are men's media saturated with sports, rap, actors, all of these people sporting uh, $100,000 watches and custom-made suits and wealth uh, mm-hmm. that few achieve. Mm-hmm. And this is what it means to be a successful man, not only macho, but can do anything and basically can buy anything. Mm-hmm. And these are things that weigh heavily on men, especially young men, because these, these are levels of wealth that uh, are all very difficult to achieve, only to the few, like a seven-foot-tall mm-hmm. basketball player. Yeah. yeah, And this isn't really talked about, and I think that poverty weighs heavy on men, and they don't want to talk about it because... To admit one is poor and doesn't measure up to these images is a frightening thought. Yeah. Yeah, I think there's something to that. And I appreciate that observation. And I I mean, I think that, you know, again, we're always looking for liberation. Everyone is looking for liberation. Even the worst people on earth are (laughs) trying in their own twisted way to be free in some way. 
And I think that we collectively, culturally, through capitalism and through the entire sort of advertising history of this country, have been sold the belief, particularly men, that the way to get liberation is to have endless access to money, Mm -hmm. that you can buy your way to liberation. And if you grind and hustle and work hard and break through, then you can have, then you can have, that's why they call it FU money, because you don't have to worry (laughs) about what other people mean. What, what they yeah. want you. And so I think that it's, it's almost like, you know, there's this notion of a toxic mimic, something that looks like the thing you want, but actually brings you farther away from it. And, you know, I think that like money and wealth becomes a toxic mimic for liberation. It mm-hmm. looks like liberation. It feels like it. Once you're sort of on the path, you feel like this is the way to go. And this is and it's even especially insidious because money is important. Like it it is like I grew up poor. And so I know how hard it is to have any kind of liberation when you have to catch the bus all the way across LA to cash one check that you barely, you know what I mean? And your mother's working and like, I know what it's like to not have any food. And so you do have to have enough money to live and have food, clothing and shelter taken care of. And I think, but I think there's a certain point at which the pursuit of endless money so that you have endless power becomes a toxic mimic for liberation. And we, we, have to I we try to work to dismantle that but that one's woven in deep so uh, you know to your point about asking questions you don't know the answer to here's a here's a question that I have (laughs) I have struggled with um with my kids with myself um it's kind of easy to see the toxic versions of masculinity to identify Mm -hmm. them you know in other people to identify those components in ourselves one of these questions that has dogged me for years is like what does the what is the positive statement <laughs> of this masculinity look like? Like, what are what are things we could be like? Ah, oh, yeah, this form of masculinity seems like it is life giving, not life taking. In your yeah, you know, yeah, form. that's yeah, that's a really interesting question, and I don't know that I have the answer to it. I think that's something that I'm discovering and building as I go because I don't want to throw out the baby with the bathwater, so to speak. I do think that I, I don't the I don't fully know what is and isn't masculinity. I know that there's one sort of school of thought that says, well, positive masculinity is masculinity that protects, uplifts, and supports the community. Okay, I'll buy that. Like, I'm, I'm with that. Um, but I also think that you got to be careful how you do that because how are you protecting the community? Mm-hmm. I mean, the police say that they're there to protect and serve, and we know that, that there are people who feel that that's not right. what's going down there. And so protection doesn't mean control. I do, and 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 then once I break it down to that level, I don't know that protection is a masculine trait in and of itself. When I look at myself as a man, the one thing I know for sure is like, what do I? What can I do that I'm in this? I'm in this male body. Uh, I know that when I go lift weights, I seems easier for me to lift more of them than it does for other, you know. And so I'm like, well, maybe this is physical strength. Like, I just, just be like, don't worry, I- I'll bring the couch up the steps. Like, just, maybe that's just maybe that's the limit of what I get to offer. And, and everything else isn't just masculinity, but it, it is humanity. It is a kind of love and listening. But I, there's not much that I can think of that is important for me to do that it bi- biologically that also the women in my life haven't been able to do. Yeah. I do think that under this current system where I am given maybe more time and space to talk, people listen to me more seriously. I'm given more platforms. I think under this certain system, there is work that I can do because I have, because the system has given me this power. 
Am I putting other people on? Am I sharing and citing the work that I've, the, the impact that other people have had on me? Am I, am I advancing these ideas that these other women have been advancing for years but no one's been listening to? Am I giving them credit for it? Like that, there's stuff I can do under the current system. Hmm. <clears throat> you know, I've heard you describe your celebrity interview thinking, like the logic of it, how you approach these things. And one of the most important aspects of that celebrity interview seems to be like getting at why this particular person's work is resonating with people. Like, mm-hmm. why are they on the magazine cover? Like, mm-hmm. why are they mm-hmm. of this particular cultural mm-hmm. relevance at this particular moment? So, if you kind of turn that to yourself, mm. how, how would you answer that for yourself? Like, why? Why do you think this work has connected with people so much in this particular period? You know, looking at 2014 and kind of um, from from Ferguson to now. Uh, well, just to get the cynical out of the way, I'm always like, every time something, I used to always, me and my friends show, every time the black thing happens, they get a black person. So a lot of black things have been happening. And so it's like, quick, get a black guy. This guy seems nice. Let's get him. So there's some of that for sure. And, um, but I also think we are at a point collectively where we can feel, even if we don't acknowledge, we can feel that a lot of these systems have run their course. Um, that patriarchy, we hope, has run its course. Capitalism, per- certainly, had, the veil has been lifted. Uh, in, and so there's kind of all these feelings of white supremacy. There's these feelings of uh, that it's time for a change, and we don't quite know what that change is. And perhaps people, the people who do like my work, which is not everyone, but the people who do like my work, like the fact that I articulate a kind of feeling that someone has deep inside them that they haven't been able to find words for and I always think of being a writer as a little bit it's like being a portrait artist it's like people are like I someone's a portrait artist is like I need a picture of some apples but I can't paint them can you paint the apples you go yeah I can paint the apples <laughs> so it's the same thing it's like I have a feeling but I can't name it can you name the feeling yeah I can name the feeling here you go so you sit down with your words your paintbrush and you name the feelings mm. and then when people say it they go ah, that's it that's the feeling thank you for naming that you know and that's it that's that's my little craft that I go around from village to village <laughs> with your easel with my yeah. little <laughs> yeah I mean you're talking about the ghosts in the Claremont Hotel um, that was one of those things where oh, some wow. of those sometimes you're in a place and you think to yourself like I can't identify where this is coming from, but I feel uncomfortable uh-huh. in this in some particular place. I, so yeah. That was that for me. Oh. <laughs> um, one listener uh, writes in to say, I'm so happy to hear Carvel's voice in today's society. I'm a domestic violence survivor mm. who relentlessly supported and still loves my abuser, even though I do not like him and had to leave him for the trauma he caused our daughter. I would encourage Carvel to get his message to more domestic violence survivors, abusers, and the people who work with them. These points of view have accelerated our recovery much faster than I have seen my peers be able to achieve. Could make a real difference mm. in this world. That's meaningful to me. Yeah, thank you for that. Um, Rebecca tweets, I can't remember when I became a Carvel Wallace fan, but I definitely remember how impactful his NYT magazine feature about parenting during protest mm. and the pandemic was. I love how vulnerable his writing is. Mm. I would like to say on on parenting, I feel like I have sort of grown up watching you be the parent that I'm like admiring. <laughs> but now, you know, now your kids are moving away. I'm uh-huh. like actually kind of worried. Are, are you going to continue to do 
any anything for the parents out there so we can continue to to follow along it's a great question i I don't i mean i i I currently uh host the slate advice podcast how to and sometimes we'll get parenting questions on there but um the sort of breadth of advice questions that we tackle in there is a little wider than what we did on mom and dad are fighting um i feel like I don't have a specific plan to do parenting advice stuff anymore. I mean, I think even before I reached a point where it was like, uh, boy, it's, well, the questions change. When the kids are little, it's like screen time, (laughs) nap time, diapers, this. So it's like when my kids are, you know, 17 and almost 18 and 20, I don't have a lot to say about those things. I don't even remember how we got to that. (laughs) (laughs) But um, so... Maybe my parenting advice is more about parenting yourself at this point. It's about becoming mm. your own inner parent. A lot of us, you know, I have a very strong <laughs> self-parenting machine inside me, you know, and perhaps too strong. And I think that, you know, a lot of what I'm talking about when I talk about healing the self is a form of parenting. It's how do we get the kind of unconditional love, support, um, and boundaries and clarity that our parents would have given us perhaps if they were capable of. Mm. Um One last comment to squeeze in. The reading of If My Mother just twisted my heart as a 15-year-old accidental mother. No more school. I became a runaway. And now, 55 years later, you made me wonder. Thank Mm. you deeply. I wish his father were alive to read you. Touching people out here, Carvel. Every day (laughs) and today especially, um, we have been talking with Oakland writer Carvel Wallace. He just won this year's American Mosaic Journalism Prize from the Heising Simons Foundation. Thank you so much for coming. Thanks for having me. This was great. Man, so good. Um, You, Carvel actually does an incredible job maintaining his selected writings on his website. You should go to carvelwallace.com, right? That is what it is, right? right, (laughs) Carvelwallace.com. Check out that writing. You've been listening to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for another hour ahead with Mina Kim. Funds for the production of KQED's Forum are provided by the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, the Germanicos Foundation, and the Heising Simons Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set ten years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Did you ever wonder what it's like to live alone, hidden in the woods, not speaking to a single soul for 30 years? Or wander the desert, uncover a hidden well, and dive to the bottom of the deepest water hole for 2,000 miles? 
The Snap Judgment Podcast takes you there with amazing stories told by the people who live them with an original soundscape that drops you directly into their shoes. Snap Judgment. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.